Well, folks, here we are. It's the end of our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. We've now spent 17 episodes exploring the darkest corners of the most haunted city in America. It's been a season of history, mystery, horror, spirits, scandals, and sins. And with a city like New Orleans, we know we've only managed to scratch the surface, but we hope we've given you a few cold chills along the way. As we take you along for our final episode of season four, Cody and I want to say thank you once again for coming along on this ride with us. We know that it's been a strange one, and well, since you're with us, we know it's definitely been a bumpy one, but it's you, our listeners, who are the ones that encourage us to keep going. So if you're ready, let's lock the doors, load the shotgun, put the jazz records on the Victrola, and keep an eye on the window in case the Axeman decides we're not playing our music loud enough tonight. After the murder of Joe Romano, which we described at the end of the last episode, hysteria seemed to grip the city as possible sightings of the Axeman began to be reported all over town, especially in the Italian neighborhoods. Many recent immigrants in the city were convinced the Axeman was out to get them, especially those who owned grocery stores. Was the Axeman some sort of black hand or mafia assassin, or was he, as more and more people were beginning to believe, some sort of supernatural being who had a hatred for Italians? Well, no one knew, which seemed to make the terror even more intense. Families divided into watches and stood guard over their relatives as they slept. They went about with loaded shotguns and waited for news of the latest Axeman sightings, trying to predict where he might strike next. On August 11th, the killer was rumored to have been seen in the neighborhood of Tulane and Broad masquerading as a woman. A manhunt was organized, but without success. On August 21st, a man was seen leaping a back fence, but despite a quickly organized search party, he escaped. But did these incidents have anything to do with the Axeman, or had wild imaginations and panic created a monster where one didn't exist? While most of the so-called sightings can be attributed to panic among local residents, the Axeman did leave some tangible evidence behind on August 11, assuming it was really him and not an imposter. On August 11th, a man named Al Duran discovered an axe and a chisel lying outside the rear door of his home in the early morning hours. The door had been damaged, but apparently proved too thick for the killer to cut through. Later that same month, the rear door of grocer Paul LaBella's residence was chiseled through and pulled open. Luckily, no one was home at the time. Well, the following morning, another grocer, Joseph LeBeau, reported that an attempt had been made to chisel through his rear door in the night. Awakened by the noise, he'd frightened the intruder away. An axe was discovered on his steps. The following day, another axe was found in the yard of a man named Renault, who was also a grocer. Chisel marks were found on his back door. On September 15th, a grocer named Paul Durrell found that someone had attempted to cut through his rear door. A case of tomatoes that had been resting against the inside panel had foiled the attack. Then, as mysteriously as he'd come, the axe man vanished. By the time that autumn truly arrived, the city had settled back into something like its usual self. The all-night Axeman vigils had ended and nervous residents had finally stopped scaring each other on the streets at night. Superintendent Mooney and his overworked police department, relieved of the pressure they'd faced during the Axeman scare, could turn back to clamping down on the city's vice business. 
Well, that really wasn't that difficult to do in 1918, as we've discussed before. Thanks to the regulations created by the War Department and the growing Spanish flu epidemic, which forced many public places to close, doesn't that sound familiar, nightlife in the city was pretty subdued. Music was still playing around town, but aside from the great number of funerals caused by the pandemic, gigs were hard to find. Many of the great jazzmen who'd made their bones in New Orleans left town for cities in the North and West, just like many performers would do decades later after Hurricane Katrina closed the clubs and bars. Performers who remained, like future legend Louis Armstrong, worked as bellboys, barbacks, carpenters, and coal cart drivers just to make ends meet. It was a grim time in New Orleans, but hey, at least the Axeman was gone. Well, until he came back, that is. Early in the morning of March 10th, 1919, an Italian grocer in Gretna, a city across the Mississippi River, heard screams coming from the grocery store across the street from his own business. He ran over and found Charles Cortemilla bloody and unconscious on the floor and his wife standing over him, screaming with a bloody child in her arms. It was clearly an attack just like all the others. There was the missing door panel, there were no signs of anything stolen, and a bloody axe had been left in the yard. The axe man was back. It was the most brutal assault so far, claiming the life of a two-year-old child who died from a single blow to the skull. The room was spattered with blood. It was on the floor, the beds, the walls, even the ceiling. And yet, despite what was a frenzy of violence, no one who lived nearby had heard a thing. The killer had escaped without a single witness to the crime and hours before the crime was even detected. The Axeman, it seemed, was becoming better at murder. The crime had been discovered around 7 a.m. on Sunday morning. Several local residents stopped by the store that morning, which usually opened at 5 a.m., but merely walked away when they found it closed. But a little girl named Hazel Johnson was more persistent. Her mother had sent her on an errand, and she didn't want to return home without the items she was supposed to buy. After knocking on the front door and getting no response, Hazel decided to try the back door. In an alley leading to the rear of the building, she found a chair that was sitting below a side window. She climbed up on the chair and looked inside, but it was too dark to see if the family was awake. So she went to the back door and found it closed, but with one of the lower panels missing. Puzzled, she called a passerby into the yard and he convinced her to go inside, possibly since she was small enough to fit through the missing panel. She crawled in and moments later ran out of the back door, screaming. Startled by the screams, a neighbor, fellow grocer Frank Giordano, ran over with his elderly father, Orlando. They entered the apartment and found Charles Cortemilla on the floor, drenched in blood, and his wife Rose clutching her dead toddler, sobbing so hard they couldn't understand what she was saying. Charles finally came around, and he sat up from the floor and spoke to Frank. I'm dying, he said. Go for my brother-in-law. He then collapsed, and it was the last thing he would say for days. While Frank left to call for an ambulance, Orlando tried to take Mary from her mother's arms, but she wouldn't let the child go. He got wet towels from the bathroom and tried to bathe her face and that of her husband. When the ambulance came, the Cordemillas were taken to the hospital with fractured skulls. 
Since the town of Gretna was in Jefferson Parish, the investigation was conducted by Chief of Police Peter Lesson and Sheriff Louis Marrero. What they found at the scene clearly indicated that the attack was linked to the attacks in New Orleans. The back door panel was chiseled out, the family's belongings had been rummaged through, and yet nothing valuable was taken. This time, a box containing money and jewelry was found undisturbed in the bedroom, along with $129. However, two trunks and a dresser had practically been torn apart in some kind of frenzied search. Even the clock on the mantle had been pried open and examined. As in the other cases, no fingerprints were found anywhere, and any footprints in the yard had been trampled by neighbors who gathered at the scene after hearing Hazel Johnson's screams. It was clear that the Axeman had returned. Well, it was clear to everyone but Lesson and Marrero. Thanks to the fact that two axes had been found left behind at the scene, one of them bloody and obviously the murder weapon, and one of them covered in blood, they decided that two men were responsible for the attack. Want to guess which two men they decided to blame? If you guessed the Giordanos, you'd be right. They weren't interested in any of the earlier murders. When neighbors told them that the Giordanos and the Cordemillas had been rivals in the grocery business, they knew they had the right suspects. Even though Frank and Orlando insisted they had made peace with the other family and were now good friends, Sheriff Marrero had his doubts. He had become convinced that Frank had carried out the attack while Orlando acted as his lookout while he did the noisy job of chiseling out the door panel. Well, the Gretna authorities were sure of the Giordano's guilt, and they were so sure that they kept asking the Cordemillas again and again whether Frank was the man who assaulted them. The victims were still barely coherent and could do little more than whisper and reply. Charles continued to insist he didn't recognize the assailant, but Rose, his 21-year-old highly traumatized wife, apparently nodded yes to their persistent questions. That was enough for Chief Lesson. He promptly had the Giordanos arrested. Meanwhile, on the other side of the river, Superintendent Mooney continued to assist that all the axe attacks had been committed by a, quote, degenerate madman. Mooney had created a task force to deal with the attacks, and his office was filled with maps, police reports, and photos from all the axe cases in the city. His team poured over them day and night. Using all of the elements of the crimes, he developed a theory that linked everything to a single man. The culprit, he insisted, was, quote, a solo maniac, a diabolical, bloodthirsty fiend, cunning and shrewd, filled with a passion for human slaughter. Or as one newspaper article put it, quote, a slinking agent of the devil at 3 a.m. Confirmation of this colorful description seemed to arrive in the office of a local newspaper editor on Friday, March 14, 1919. The editor opened his mail to find a letter that allegedly came from the Axeman himself. Postmarked from hell on March 13th, the letter read, Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I'm not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I'm what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent from below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. 
I take no offense at the way they've conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they've been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in a close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed in either fact or realm of fancy. And the letter was signed simply, The Axeman. The sensation caused by this letter, especially in the poor ethnic neighborhoods that had been hardest hit by the crimes, can only be imagined. Certainly many, and probably most, people were skeptical about the authenticity of the letter. There was something just a little too slick about it to be the writings of a crazed madman. But for a city that had been shaken and traumatized by a brutal series of crimes, the letter was a shock, whether it was a hoax or not. After all, someone was stalking the streets of New Orleans committing murders, and if the way to appease the monster was to cut loose for one night, then the locals, who had already been starved of music and revelry by reformers, would be happy to do so. Well, when Tuesday night, the eve of St. Joseph's Day, a major holiday for Italians, arrived, the people of New Orleans did their best to follow the Axeman's instructions to the letter. Restaurants and clubs all over town were jammed with partiers. Friends and neighbors gathered in their homes to jazz it up, and midnight found the city alive with activity. Banjos, guitars, and mandolins strummed into the night while pianos and horns blared from front windows and open windows. Homes and cafes all over town were brightly illuminated and filled with jazz all night long. One enterprising local composer even took the opportunity to create the theme song for the night. Joseph de Villa titled his composition The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz or Don't Scare Me Papa. Don't ask me, I don't know. And in typical New Orleans fashion, it became a huge hit. The cover of the sheet music featured a drawing of a frightened looking family playing musical instruments in their living room as a young woman peered nervously out the front door. When the sun rose the next morning, it was learned that not a single attack had occurred during the night. Whether it was the jazz being played all over town or Superintendent Mooney's decision to put the police on high alert, the Axeman was nowhere to be found. The night had been great for the city's jazz men who'd been suffering from a lack of work caused by recent restrictions, but a bad night for New Orleans petty criminals who had to think twice about breaking into a home where a loaded shotgun might be waiting for them. 
Well, in the days and weeks that followed the big night, the Axeman remained out of sight. Perhaps he was just as interested as everyone else in the city about the trial of Frank and Orlando Giordano, which took place in late May. The defense worked hard on the two men's behalf, trying to show that the testimony against them was flawed since Rose still had been recovering from her wounds when she identified Frank as her assailant. Her husband, Charles, continued to insist that Frank was not the man who'd attacked him, but Rose's appearance in court with her head shaved and bandages still in place had a great effect on everyone in the courtroom. She would not be shaken from her testimony that Frank was the guilty man. The defense tried to put Superintendent Moody on the stand to convince the jury that the attack had been another in a long series of attacks, but the judge ruled that his testimony was irrelevant. Convinced by Rose Cordemilla's testimony, the jury found both of the Giordanos guilty. The case would eventually be appealed to the state Supreme Court, but in the meantime, Frank was sentenced to death, and his father, likely because of his advanced age, was given a life sentence. Two Axeman suspects were now behind bars, but there were few people who believed the guilty man had actually been found. And as if to make that point clear, the Axeman struck again in the Uptown neighborhood at 3.15 a.m. on Sunday, August 4th. Sarah Lauman, a 19-year-old young woman who was sleeping in her parents' house, was awakened by a sharp pain in her left ear. When she opened her eyes, she saw a large man looming over her bed. His features were unclear because of the mosquito netting, a New Orleans necessity in those days, that was hanging above the bed, but she saw a white man with dark hair who was wearing a white shirt. He looked a lot like the man that had been earlier described by Joe Romano's niece, and like Pauline Bruno had done, Sarah let out a blood-curdling scream. When she did, the man bolted away and escaped through an open window. By the time her parents rushed in from the bedroom, the intruder had escaped. Sarah's only wound turned out to be a laceration on her ear. Why so lucky? Well, the killer's axe had gotten tangled in the mosquito netting. Hours later, the axe was found discarded under a school building next door that was under repair. Well, the attack started another round of panic in the city, and well, for good reason, as it turned out. Less than a week later, a grocer named Steve Boca stumbled from his home on Elysian Fields Avenue with axe wounds in his skull. Covered in blood, he made it to a neighbor's house who called for an ambulance. The police later found all the signatures of the axe man, including a chiseled out door panel and a bloody axe left lying in the middle of the floor. In the early morning hours of September 3rd, a druggist named William Carlson was lying awake reading when he heard a noise at his back door. He got his revolver, called out several times, and then fired through the door. When he went outside, he saw no one around, but police officers who rushed to the scene found what they believed were the marks of a chisel in one of the door panels. Well, by now, the people of New Orleans believed the Axeman was everywhere and that the police were powerless to stop the murders. And they may have been right, because after one final slaughter, well, the killer just stopped on his own. On the night of October 27th, Deputy Sheriff Ben Corcoran was returning late to his home in Mid-City when he heard screaming from the Italian grocery store on the corner. He ran to the scene and found 11-year-old Rosie Pepitone screaming and crying that her father was, quote, full of blood. When he went into the residence behind the store, he found his neighbor, Esther Pepitone, in hysterics. She wailed that, quote, the Axeman was here and murdered Mike. She'd heard the sounds of a struggle late in the night, and when she went to check on her husband, saw a shadowy man disappear out of the door. She found her husband lying on a gore-soaked bed. There was so much blood that she was convinced he had to be dead. The crime scene was now a familiar one. Mike Pepitone had been butchered. 
His skull was fractured and the entire left side of his face had been beaten in. This attack was the most savage of all. Blood spattered the walls of the room to a height of more than eight feet. The obvious murder weapon lay on a chair next to the bed, but it was not an axe or a hatchet. It was a foot-long, thick iron bar with a metal nut screwed on the end. Mike, it turned out, did not own an axe. And he wasn't dead either, not yet anyway. He was rushed to Charity Hospital, bleeding from the brain, and died a short time later. His wife could offer no explanation about what had happened. She only knew that she and her six children, sleeping in other rooms of the house, had been left untouched. Well, there are many questions that remain about what may have been the Axeman's last murder. The biggest question is whether the killer had been the Axeman at all. It's true that Mike Pepitone had been an Italian grocer, but the murder weapon had not been an axe. Plus, the killer had not chiseled through a door panel. Instead, he'd entered the house by breaking a window. If not for the fact that Mrs. Pepitone had told Ben Corcoran that, quote, the Axeman was here and murdered Mike, it might not have even been considered an Axeman attack at all. Even Superintendent Mooney was skeptical. His detectives actually linked the Pepitone murder to a series of mafia killings in the early 1900s that were then linked to a kidnapping. In 1910, Mike's father, Pietro, had been arrested for another mafia murder and was free on parole when his son was killed. In fact, he was also living in Mike's house and was there when the attack occurred. Could someone have been trying to kill Pietro and killed Mike by mistake? Well, no one knows. And even Superintendent Moody admitted that, quote, the police have not a slightest clue. In any case, this was the last alleged Axeman crime. Several suspects were arrested for one or the other of the attacks over the weeks, but all of them were eventually released for lack of evidence. And as time passed without another murder, the hysteria in the city subsided. Even the Giordanos were eventually released. Rose Cordemilla apparently had a nighttime visitation from St. Joseph, who urged her to clear her conscience before she died. She soon recanted her testimony about Frank. She claimed that she had not been in her right mind when she accused him. So the one so-called solved Axeman attack had now also become unsolved, just like all the others. But there were no more murders in the night, although Superintendent Frank Mooney's career fell victim to the killer. Harshly criticized for being unable to solve the murders, he was forced to resign in late 1920. He went back to work running a railroad, this time in the jungles of Honduras, where he died after a heart attack in 1923. The Axeman was never seen or heard from in New Orleans again. His crimes have never been solved, but the story did have a final chapter in 1921, and, well, it's a strange one. In December 1921, New Orleans police received inquiries from Los Angeles about a man who had been shot to death there named Joseph Monfrey. He was walking down a busy street one afternoon when, quote, a woman in black and heavily veiled stepped from the doorway of a building, a revolver in hand, and emptied the gun into Monfrey. He fell dead on the sidewalk and the woman stood over him, still holding the gun, making no effort to escape. The woman was taken to the police station, and at first she would only say that her name was Esther Albano. She would not reveal the reason why she killed Monfrey. Days later, though, she changed her mind and confessed that she was actually Mrs. Mike Pepitone, the widow of the last victim of the New Orleans Axeman. She finally explained why she shot Monfrey. 
He was the axe man, she said. I saw him running from my husband's room. I believe he killed all those people. Well, the New Orleans police were immediately drawn into the case and began working to try and untangle the mystery that might possibly link Monfrey to the Axeman murders. Some curious coincidences were revealed during the investigation. Monfrey, who had once been the leader of a band of blackmailers in New Orleans who preyed on Italians, he had been implicated in the kidnappings that had been linked to Pietro Pepitone, as well as several black hand bombings of grocery stores. Now Esther Albano's implication of him as the murderer of her first husband allowed the police to tie him to the most notorious unsolved crimes in the city's history. Monfrey, detectives believed, could have been the Axeman himself. He certainly fit the description. He was tall, heavy-set, dark-complexioned white man. And when going over his arrest and prison records, a pattern seemed to form. Although the records were confused and very, very incomplete, it seemed that Monfrey's arrivals and departures from prison coincided with when Axeman attacks occurred and stopped especially the lull in attacks from August 1918 to March 1919, when Monfrey was in prison. Well, the pattern was not a perfect fit, but the police were desperate to show that they were doing something in the investigation. Well, some people agreed with the logic of the theory, but most of the newspapers didn't. They ridiculed the idea, pointing out that Monfrey had been in jail during some of the attacks, and even if he wasn't, this alone wasn't enough to arrest him. There was no other evidence to link him to any of the murders. The police, understandably, were grasping at straws. Even so, Monfrey had left New Orleans immediately after the Pepitone murder, and some claimed the Axeman had vanished then as well. But if the Pepitone attack was not an Axeman murder, and it's possible even likely that it was not, Monfrey could have committed this murder, and he still wouldn't be the Axeman. I think he probably was Pepitone's killer, but the idea of him being the Axeman... Well, that's just conjecture. As for Esther Pepitone Albano, she was tried in a Los Angeles court in April, entered a guilty plea, and so the proceedings were brief. Her attorney claimed that it was justifiable homicide, and while this was disregarded, she did have the sympathy of the court. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but served less than three and subsequently vanished into history. Well, the death of Joseph Monfrey did not solve the Axeman murders or even the death of Mike Pepitone. Many believe that the Axeman was not one killer, but several, all working together to terrorize the Italian community. Well, this is possible. Some of the murders really didn't contain the signature of Superintendent Mooney's lone killer and were likely just accepted as Axeman attacks thanks to the hysteria that gripped the city. We can likely dismiss the Axeman letter that called for a night of jazz and revelry in New Orleans as a hoax, believed by only the most gullible of people. But what about the crimes that had all the same signatures? The chiseled door panel, the axe, and most important as far as I'm concerned, the taking of small souvenirs while leaving cash and valuables behind. I believe those crimes really were the work of one man, a killer that the letter writer claimed was, quote, the worst demon that ever existed, either in fact or the realm of fancy. But who was he? Where did he go? And why did he disappear in 1919 and never return? Well, most likely we're never going to know. The Axeman came, terrorized the city for a time, and then disappeared without a trace, leaving one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in New Orleans history in his wake.
Thanks to all of you for listening to season four of American Hauntings podcast. And it's been a lot of fun to present these stories to you. And I look forward to not only our next season, but also to expanding all my bloody and haunted tales of New Orleans in my book, Satan's Carnival, which will be coming in 2021. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? There's one thing that the American Hauntings podcast knows about, and that's mothers. We featured a lot of great mothers in a lot of our episodes. Pearl Curran, Julia Lemp, Sarah Moore, Marie Laveau, Jane Mansfield, Tamsin Donner, Delphine LaLaurie, Belle Gunnis. Okay, maybe leave out those last two. But what I'm saying is that with Mother's Day coming soon, you need a truly special gift for your mom because, well, she's not Belle Gunnis. So let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that literally turns your mom's life story into a book. So here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your mom a question in her email, the same way she sends you questions about your dating life or when you plan to give her grandkids. Anyway, these can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. She replies by either typing in the answers or by recording her own voice. Then mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a keepsake book. And they can create an audiobook that uses her voice recordings, preserving her voice and her stories forever. As anyone who doesn't have their mom around anymore can tell you, having your mother's stories about growing up, being a kid, and overcoming life's challenges will be something that you and your kids will treasure. 
And let's be honest, your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a very cool way to share them. Honestly, I decided to try this out for myself and I sent it to my mom. And she's not exactly a whiz at computers, but she still found it really easy to use. My mom might have had a little more unusual childhood than a lot of mothers do. So I'm really glad to have this. And I think you'll be glad to give one to your mother too. So check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code HAUNTINGS at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code HAUNTINGS for 10% off today. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We have now reached the end of season four of the podcast, Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Yep, here we are, all the way at the end. I can't believe it. I know, I know, right? Is this really the end? Are you going to punk me and no, we're actually no, going to no, have no, three more is gonna, No, this is the this is going to be the last one for this season, so oh, man, we're good. I actually got, like... Been a lot of stuff going on. The world's, you know, crazy place. Um, I've been cooped up. I but I got a little emotional this morning when I was writing all this out, and I read you saying we've now reached the end. Yeah. And I was like, as much as like every time we do a season, I'm always like, fuck, I'm like so happy when this is gonna be over. But like, <laughs> and that's the same way with this. But like, I, I've liked this one. I, I have love too. New Orleans. Yeah. No, me too. And it was it was a, it was tough to decide what to leave in and what to leave out. Mm-hmm. And. So I just, you know, decided that this we should wrap it up with yeah. the, the axe man and be done and, you know, leave um I don't know, leave people wanting more and looking forward to the next season, which will not be about New Orleans, right. but still. You Winter know. okay, I want that's something I wanted to talk about. Um and this is uh, as you know, Troy and I do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff on air right in the middle of, of an <laughs> yeah. episode. Um, when are we wanting to do the next season and announce it and stuff? Do we know? Um, what do you think? No, probably. I mean, you know, sometimes I, I, my, my plan, I was thinking if it works out okay with you, we could start in September or something mm-hmm. with the next season. So we'll, you know, we'll have this episode and then we'll have a couple of gaps in between. We'll fill in with some special episodes, yeah. stuff, a trailer for the next episode or next season, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the tentative plan. So that's fair. we'll have some stuff in there, but we're not going to take in it like a long break like we did before season sure. three or anything. So that's fair. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, what's, what's going on? You had a, a live event happen. Um, yeah, finally out in uh, public again yeah. uh, last week and had another one actually last night. So yeah. Done a couple of those. And those have been going well? Yeah, it's worked out pretty well. It, uh, people are, um, you know, uh, happy to, to get together and to do, you know, cooperate with the, you know, the new things we had to set up because none of it's really all that hard. So it really wasn't very complicated. You know, we've been getting ready for our 
you know, the end of the summer and the fall events that we have coming up, the tours and the Ghosts of the River Road tours that Lisa and I do. And uh, we put, we've added 20 new ghost hunts for the fall. But, you know, and those were, we could have done those regardless because they're so small groups. And right. Talk about, you know, people spread out through a location. That's sure. like built in social distancing. So yep. those were already kind of an easy, good to go kind of thing. But we, you know, the evening with dinner events that we do, actually, we, we've moved our location for those to uh, the Best Western Premier, which is the home of the conference. Yep. Um, that way location. we can, yeah, we can take a, a smaller group, spread them out through a private ballroom. So we've got a lot more distance. Uh, they've upgraded a lot of the, you know, the safety stuff, the health stuff. And, you know, bonus, there's a bar right next door yes. to the, the ballroom. So that has been nice. And, and after doing a couple of these uh, two weeks in a row, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the change. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have been, and been asking, you know, what else you got coming up? We got a lot of stuff coming for the fall. So I just always tell everybody to go to altonhauntings.com. So awesome. You know, and the other thing that we did, speaking of, you know, social distancing and that kind of stuff, we, we have a brand new together in spirit shirt. Remember we did a quarantine shirt yep. earlier in the year. And, uh, this is a, this is our together in spirit short Shirt, short, <laughs> and short, short shirt, and uh, the idea behind it is just to kind of keep promoting the idea that you know we don't have to be you know in a big crowd mm-hmm. to do stuff because this this I mean summer is most of the way over already. It seems like it just got here. I've been to the pool one time. I know this weird. This year has been just so weird that everything is is so strange, but. When summer starts to wane, then I start thinking about Halloween. We all do. I mean, that's yeah. what we do. That's yeah, the thing we're interested in. But, you know, that seems kind of scary. I mean, as far as, and not in a good way, yes. as to what are we going to do about Halloween this year? Well, my the idea behind the new shirts was to kind of encourage everybody to make sure they do their parts. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the basic stuff we've been talking about all along, washing our hands, social distancing, wear the damn face masks. Um, you know, the next person that tries to tell me they're excited about Halloween this year, but won't wear a face mask yeah. for themselves and for other people, you're going to be one of the people who ruin the holiday for everybody <laughs> right, else. Right. It's just wear the damn mask. Yeah. It doesn't hurt anything. Even if you don't think it's, if you're some wacko who thinks it's not, I'm sorry, it's a free podcast. Yep. So yep, I'm going to yep, speak yep. my opinion here. No, and I'm you fine. don't, people don't have to listen if they don't want to, they can disagree if they want, but you know, wearing a mask certainly does not hurt anything. Right. And if you believe all the scientists are liars and, you know, politicians know more than scientists do. So, you know, yeah. if you, you know, scientists have proven that wearing a mask helps the spread. I mean, they found that out back in 1918. How do you think we got rid of the Spanish flu? Right. It certainly wasn't just because somebody dreamed up a cure for the flu because, hello, we still have it. Yes. So people wore masks just like we have to now. If you're in a crowd of people that you don't know, it's not your immediate family or your immediate friends, you're around all the time and it's more than 10 people, just put on a mask. Right. I want Halloween. You know, don't, don't tell me you've got a medical problem that keeps you from wearing a mask. Right. Being dumb is not a medical problem. Um, <laughs> so don't, you know, please, come on, guys. So anyway, that's the point of the shirt. So um, And now if you're angry and you're not going to buy one, I'm sorry, um, but we'll give you all the money back you've spent on this podcast. Oh, wait, it's free. I want to go trick anyway, or treating. Yeah. So, you know, come on, just, you know, that's, we did the shirt just as kind of a, yeah. you know, a reminder thing. And, we, you know, we've already got a lot, a lot of orders for them because they're, they're fun. They're, yeah. they're just fun shirts. And so, Anyway, that's um, you know don't don't bother to send me your emails to complain because I'm not going to read them. So if you're going to complain because I'm telling people they should wear masks, 
that's okay. You don't need to. Yeah, so. I I will read them and not tell Troy. And then we also we, when we did we did a Patreon um, happy hour the other day yeah, on Zoom that fun. kind of thing, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, those are fun. We've done a few of those. This yeah, year and that was kind of the to, yeah together in spirit sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I really enjoyed that. Um, what else you got? Well, we've been doing a lot of those. speaking of live streams and Zoom. We've yeah. been doing a lot of those um, for people who don't want to get out or for people who just live really far away, which has been. Really cool because, and I think I said this last time, our last episode too, if it hadn't have been for the fact that we were all locked down, we might not have thought about doing these kinds of things. And yeah. then we would not have gotten, you know, um, a much, yeah, and, not, and, you know, being able to interact with people whose maybe names we saw because they ordered a book or mm-hmm. something. But, you know, now we're, we can actually, you know, stay in touch with them on a much easier basis. Yeah. So we started doing those. Um, I just finished another one last week. And then the next one I've got coming up this month is um, an evening uh, or a live stream among the missing, which is kind of based on the book I, Without a Trace yep. that I did. And I've got a Haunted Hollywood one and a Haunted President Abraham Lincoln one. It's coming up. So we just, we put up on the website at AmericanHauntings.net and people, um, you know, people are finding them and we're having a lot of fun with them. Sometimes they last a little longer than everyone imagines they yeah. will because by the time I'm done with the presentation, we usually sit around for a couple of hours and, you know, talk and answer questions shoot and shoot yeah. the shit. Yeah, exactly. So they, they are a lot of fun. So we like doing that. So. Anyway, yeah. So that's kind of what I've got going on right now. So not a lot. Um, oh yeah. Well, we're we're trying to have something because for how long did we say? Well, what do you got going on? Not I a know. damn thing. I know. <laughs> you know but so you <laughs> and us, like a lot of different businesses and stuff, everybody had to adapt, you know, yeah. and, and figure yeah. it out. And Absolutely. We, we figured it out. Well, so, okay. So, so since this is the last episode of the season, um, we've had a lot of really nice reviews lately, and so I'm just gonna tear through. I think there's only like four or five of them, but. Some of them are a little longer, but they're really nice. People said some really cool stuff, and I yeah, wanted it's to... the last one of the season. It's the last we one. should get those in. Yeah, I'll, I'll trip at the finish line. So this one's uh, from Bindico, and it's titled Awesome. It says, these, do, these guys do such a great job. I went looking for some new podcasts and came across American Hauntings. After reading the short review and basic info, I decided to give it a try. Let me tell you, if you like hauntings, ghosts, paranormal, fact-based stories, murder mysteries with hauntings, you will love this podcast. Cody and Troy are great at telling a story. They do their research. They try to cover all the bases, and it's a addictive that's kind of scary but um yep i found uh that i wanted to just keep listening and when i'm not i'm thinking about it can't wait to hear the next cast uh wait can't wait to hear the next cast to hear what's going to happen next standing outside your window yes exactly uh the series such as (laughs) exorcism in st louis missouri is interesting and fascinating i love the idea of these short series and find them full of interesting information i wasn't aware of i'm old enough to remember most of the stories uh, but mainstream media is very limiting. That's where Cody and Troy really kick it in the ass. They pull out a lot of facts and tidbits that flesh out the story. Even their banter is fun and uh, <laughs> interesting as they pretty well stick to the subject at hand. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. Uh, okay. And it says, if you can support them on Patreon, please do. Let's keep them moving forward with their talents and storytelling and sharing the fascinating information. They seem very good at digging up. Uh, almost done. <laughs> Living in St. Charles, Missouri, I find the St. Louis and Alton, Illinois stories especially interesting. The cat, the episodes about the limps was were fascinating to listen to. Like thousands of other St. Louis residents, I've gone through Limp Mansion and knew some of the story, but I learned a lot of history, not only about the limps while listening to these other episodes, but about St. Louis and how the beer barons shaped this area. Love the podcast. Thanks for all your hard work, Cody and Troy. I just realized this person, they were saying the word cast, meaning episodes, like podcasts, mm-hmm. and right. I didn't, I thought it was like an auto correct thing so oh. that's why i kept saying so sorry that i just never heard anybody <laughs> refer to that as that but thank you so much for that very nice review 
This next one's from, oh boy, uh, Holly TH102321. Yikes. I know. It's a super, superb storytelling. My friend recommended you guys because of my love, everything New Orleans, and I've been hooked ever since. I've listened to all of the fourth and first seasons. Both are fantastic. I'm working from home, and you guys are keeping me company during the day. Thank you, and please keep making more. Well, I'm happy we can help you get through the day. Thank you so much for your review. This next one's from KOCB. Um, Division... <laughs> deviously delightful. I don't know why that threw me. Uh, you two outdo yourselves every time. I love everything spooky, everything haunted, everything paranormal. I've been to many other places that you guys talk about, so it's always exciting to see what your perspective is. Love the history, love the storytelling, and sometimes I love the banter. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. I love it. Sometimes, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, um, I'm a middle school... I am a middle school library. Mm, oh, I think you're a librarian. And so there are times I think that you, you do act just like my middle schoolers do yeah, when, when you too. pick on each other. Keep up the good work and thank you for the entertainment and some downtime. Wish you guys were closer so I could come see you in person. Well, as we were just talking about, you could do some kind of virtual event yep, or jump on true. a stream or something. Yeah. Um, and I apologize for picking on you. And then right right after that, you call us middle schoolers because <laughs> you're right. You're, you're totally right. Um, this next one's from Who Cares Jim. It's titled It's Great. And the reason I put this one in here is because he says, updating my previous review, he was talking about the Velisca book and he was a little upset. And then he said, the book does have a lot more info than the podcast on the Velisca season. These guys do put out a great podcast and it seems like it's the only one I really look forward to anymore. I just ordered the Boneyard book as well, um, which is great because I know the guy, he ordered the book, was a little bit upset about it and then decided, wait, wait, no, there's way more in here. And <laughs> yeah. and man, we did so many episodes on that, but there's still, well, you still it's, cut like it I down. Said, I, we'd still be doing that if I we just did the book, we'd still be in that we season, would be so. but i just i just appreciate it so much when like um somebody uh leaves us a review and then has a change of heart and actually tells us like hey you know what sure. you won yeah. me over or yeah. something well, like or yeah just yeah that yeah. that just means a lot um it's like whenever i go through taco bell and i have a really complicated <laughs> order and they do a great job i go back through and i'm like hey i just want to let you know you guys did a great job instead of just complaining you know i just i appreciate it did you need sauce and that's the answer that you get when you do that just so you know <laughs> right so. um then it's like yes yes i did uh, fill it up <laughs> This last one's from Susan Marie. It's just great storytelling. Like all the previous seasons, I've been really enjoying the, po the story presented. This time, the story of New Orleans. This is a city I've always wanted to visit, and your love of the place comes through each episode. There are other places I never really thought that much about, like St. Louis. I don't blame you. Uh, that are now on my list of places to go whenever we're able to travel again. But never in my life did I ever think I'd be saying to my husband, Honey, now that you're retired, why don't we go to Alton, Illinois? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, yeah. well, maybe we will get there one day and take a tour or two. In the meantime, I enjoy each episode you offer. I especially love the presentation of the story first and the discussion afterward. Cody will often ask the questions I've had I have had while listening for the first to the first part and Troy you do love to share everything you know and I love hearing it. Thank you. And that I I appreciate that because I like when people get what we're doing, and especially uh -huh. what I'm doing. Like yeah, people right. are like, "Cody, why don't you're you know this?" Like, I'm like, "Yeah, you're not like I'm a here. little midget. You're just <laughs> supposed to be filling in for yeah, asking questions exactly. that people might have." I'm trying to so. be the the everyman kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for all those reviews, and um, I don't know. I think I'm just gonna. I I won't read. I can't read every review all the time, but I think I just pick out my favorites and if they're <laughs> funny or you know interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um. And as you can tell, I do not proofread or run through them at all before <laughs> I read them live. Um. So thank you so much. It really helps people find the show. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The last episode yep. of season four. Wow. Okay. So the X Men Part Two. So after the murder of Joe Romano, the X Men is. Sighted all over town, especially in Italian neighborhoods. Right. 
Some believe them to be Black Hand or a mafia assassin. Others maybe a supernatural being who hated Italians, because that's a thing. <laughs> um, there's some random potential sightings, but he always escapes. And then Al Durand finds an axe and chisel outside of his rear door. Luckily, the killer couldn't get through the door. Um, luck of the draw. Yeah. Paul LaBella's residence was chiseled into, but nobody's home. And then more and more cases, just axes and chisels being found at like houses of grocers and stuff. Right. And then he's gone. And this was a really grim time in 1918, uh, New Orleans, due to growing relations from the War Department and the Spanish flu epidemic. And uh, you drew a comparison. You said any great jazz musicians had left the city because everything's kind of closing down, much like after Hurricane Katrina. Right. People are like, we got to go. We got to go gotta somewhere. Eat. You know, we right. got to perform. We got to play. So people started to go up north, which, you know, I guess was kind of a good thing after they closed Storyville and, you know, and all this stuff happened because then that helped jazz spread throughout the country. Mm, okay, but it might point. not have done otherwise. The same right. way with, you know, um, the blues after, you know, um, in the late, in the 30s and 40s, especially after World War II, when it started to spread north into like Chicago and they started to electrify it. And because, I mean, prior to the blues coming to Chicago and St. Louis and things, it was always acoustic, mm -hmm. you know, and so... Oh, I didn't even know, think of that. Yeah, especially in Chicago when, you know, guys would play it out on the streets and the only way for it to be heard was to use an amp. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you've got a busy street and cars going by and stuff, so these guys started to hook up to amps and blues changed a lot because of that. And this was the same kind of thing. This helped, you know, a lot of these, you know, famous musicians who had already, you know, become, you know, legends or semi-legends in New Orleans. Now, you know, they were showing up in New York and D.C. and Chicago and St. Louis because they needed places to play. And uh, that that really made a difference, yeah. you know, in how everything spread. That is really interesting. Was there one, was there one town or highway or anything in particular where people flooded to, or they just kind of not really with jazz, uh, not that I'm aware of anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know as much about it. I mean, you know, they used to talk about the, you know, going from Mississippi to Chicago was a big deal. That highway, that straight up line, okay, up to Chicago with the blues. But as far as jazz goes, I, I'm not aware of it. There sure. may be someone may know that, and if there is, I'm sure they'll let us know <laughs> right. uh, so they can point out that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I'm not aware of it with jazz. Got it. But I, it did help it spread throughout yeah. the country. Interesting. Okay, so March 10th, 1919, the town of Gretna, just across the Mississippi, Charles. Oh boy. Okay, Cordemia. Yeah, Cordemilla. Cordemilla, yeah. okay. Uh, a grocer yeah. Yeah. is found bloody and unconscious on his floor, his wife standing over him, screaming with a bloody child in his arms. It was clearly an attack, just like all the others. Missing door panel, no sign of anything stolen, and a bloody axe left in the yard. So this time he kills a two-year-old child. Mm -hmm. uh, so this has escalated to a, a whole different yeah. level. Yeah. No one's heard or saw a thing. You said he was getting better at murder. Uh, getting away. Getting sure. away, sure. So a little girl makes her way into the store uh, when it doesn't open, basically, and discovers the scene and runs out, freaking out. And fellow grocer Frank Giordano. How'd you like to have been that guy that encouraged her to go ahead and yeah, crawl yeah, crawl on in there the and see what's going on? Way to go, buddy. Yeah, you know, just traumatize uh, this child. Uh, for life, probably. Right. So fellow grocer Frank Giordano runs into the apartment. Charles eventually sits up and says, I'm dying. Go for my brother-in-law. So I wanted to clarify, was the wife hit as well? Yes, yeah, she okay. was hit also, but the baby was dead. Right, right, uh, right. But he had hit all three of them. Um, she got hit in the head a couple of times, and that's why when she was in court, her head was still bandaged and stuff, and they were both of them had been clubbed in the head with the axe. Oh, and okay, chopped. okay. So, got it. Yeah, and so that's why when they questioned her, mm -hmm. you know, whether she was like, she was like yeah, completely out of it. Okay, you know? got it. Okay, I think actually 
that makes a lot of sense. I think I put that question down before I remembered that they circle oh, right, back right, later. Right. Okay, so uh, even though he didn't steal anything, he did rummage through some trunks and a dresser, which is weird, right? Yeah, really weird. Um, I wonder, did he not have any clothes? Maybe got no. I don't know. I think I think clock? he was just looking for whatever souvenir would strike his fancy because mm-hmm. that's normally what he took was just something that appealed to him. He left behind the. That money and jewelry, one hundred and twenty-nine dollars yeah. in cash, um, but searched through all this stuff to see what he could take. So mm-hmm. he obviously took something, but sure. we don't know what it was. But so this is a legit. I do believe this is a legitimate axe man. Case. Yeah, and this we're going to get back yeah, to that we'll too because I'm curious about how many murders do you think right, he actually committed? Right. The letter, all that stuff. So um, let's see. Lesson and Marrero decided that since there were two axes at the crime scene, it must have been two murderers. <laughs> yeah. uh, they immediately blamed the Jordan and eventually arrested them. On the other side of the river, Mooney had created a task force to deal with the attacks. He developed a theory that linked everything to a single man. The culprit, he insisted, was a solo maniac, diabolical, bloodthirsty fiend, cunning and shrewd, filled with a passion for human slaughter. So he's doing some very, like, profile type well stuff, yeah i mean I sure for a guy who you know was like a you know retired railroad engineer well, yeah. that ended up with the job of police superintendent that he was completely unqualified and unsuited for but yeah. he did do his best right i mean he was what trying he, yeah. he was trying but he really got and i don't think he was wrong in most of the cases mm-hmm. I mean, he did really get obsessed with the idea that this was some kind of you know, repeat killer, yeah. you know, serial killer. They just didn't call him that yet. Sure. But he, you know, I do think he was correct in most of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, he really had a way with words for the newspapers though. I don't know yeah. if he was writing his own press or somebody was doing it for him, but he really came up with a lot of very flowery, descriptive yeah. kind of things. I mean, and then what makes me suspicious then is the newspaper article that I quoted next that called him a slinking agent of the devil at 3 a.m. And yes. I'm thinking, okay, that's the guy who's given Mooney all his quotes. It's yes. got to be, it's, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, he's, he's got somebody giving punching up his speeches yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, so this letter to the, letter to the editor, um, I'm not going to yeah. read it because it's way too damn oh, long and you already long. heard it. Yeah. Um, but it's called it a, a Colorful Description and one of which confirmation would arrive in the office of a local newspaper editor on Friday, March 14th, 1919. Editor opened his mail to find a letter that allegedly came from the X-Men himself, postmarked from hell on March 13th, which is amazing. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you didn't, I don't think you mentioned this, but I'm guessing there was no Zodiac type thing of like details of the crime to confirm. No, no, this is, this, this was the entire letter. Okay. This is the letter that arrived. Got it. And it, you know, he knew this was going to sell some papers if he printed it. And so he did. And it was, um, it was a big deal. Um, you know, especially in the neighborhoods that, as I mentioned, had been hit hardest by the crimes. I mean, so to, to a lot of people, this was something that was really shocking, but, I think that most people were probably saw it for what it was. I don't so? know who wrote this letter. Um, I don't think it was the Axe Man. Um, I think it was either it was either somebody at the newspaper mm-hmm. or it was somebody just playing an elaborate prank. Okay, um, but no, I or maybe it was a guy who owned a jazz club. That, you know, who that, knows? You know? You know, owned a bar at a jazz club or something. You That's, know, maybe it was a jazz musician. Who knows? That is interesting. But I mean, somebody somebody wrote this letter, and I think that because you know whether it was a hoax or not. I mean, and whether it was a hoax or not. Someone was committing murders. Yeah, so, right, right. I mean, you could take the letter, you know, with a huge grain of salt. But on the other hand, 
why not? Yeah. You know, I mean, here's Wear an excuse to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, th- but this is your excuse to cut loose on a Tuesday night, yeah. you know, and you've got like, um, you know, society and police uh, approval to do it because you're going along with the demands of the ax man, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it's, I, I've always found the letter to be super entertaining yeah. uh, for what it is and the response that it got. Sure. Uh, because in, in another city, I don't think it would have gotten the attention that it got in New Orleans. It, let's say something like that happened in Chicago or something. You know, it, it just would not have been the same. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something like that to happen in New Orleans, the way that they embrace you know, the, the oddities and the macabre. And sure. I think that it found a very willing audience in New Orleans right. to go along with this. I mean, you know, you've got a guy who puts together sheet music, you know, like on the fly. For all we know, he wrote it. Right. You know, trying but, to promote a new yeah, song. Yeah, trying to promote his new song. But anyway, you know, it became a huge hit. I mean, for just that reason. So... I don't know. Whatever, whatever it was, I guess you could look at it and say, "Oh well, it worked. Nobody got killed." I so, mean, you know, you nobody know, got I mean, killed. Technically, it worked, but prove me otherwise. Is you this, know, was this? So. Um, <laughs> I mentioned Zodiac and stuff, but and and uh, there's you know Jack Te- the Ripper. Well, and Ted yeah. Kaczynski and things like that. But was is this one of the like earliest things of like the press being involved? No, with no, no, things, no. Or has this been no, a thing? Um, uh, you know, no. That's a that's um, you find that a lot. Yeah. Uh, prior, even prior to this. Um, in a lot of the stuff that I've written about with the the Axeman, the other Axeman, the Louisiana, Texas Axeman mm-hmm. uh, from years earlier, uh, was the same kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the press was someone involved. And if you go back to London and Whitechapel in 1888 with Jack the Ripper, yeah. and somebody wrote a letter there too. And um, that could have been from the killer, uh, mostly because he mentioned some things the killer would know about the kidney and right, stuff. Right, right, right. Uh, but a lot of people have said that it was a hoax. Uh, but it's there's no way to know yeah. for sure. But yeah, the press was very much involved. And and even, you know, even on into more modern times, I mean, the Black Dahlia story, the press was super involved. Um, somebody sent a lot of best short stuff to the Los Angeles Examiner. You know, the Herald and Examiner got a package of her her belongings that had been missing. Oh, wow. And so the press was, was at that time, a much more hand-in-hand kind of thing with the police, mm-hmm. uh, at least in 1940s L.A., but and uh, other places, too. So the fact that this happened with the newspaper um, really isn't that big of a surprise. But again... Let's not let's not go into this thinking that that was the sure. axe man who wrote sure. the letter because I honestly don't believe it was. Right. But, uh, but it definitely fits into the the entire narrative of the axe man. For okay. Sure. You can't leave it out. Oh, of you course. You know when yeah. you're talking about it, whether you believe it was him or not. Right. Uh, so just a couple of my favorite highlights from this. Um, so I can slay thousands of your best citizens for I am a close <laughs> relationship with the angel of death, and then I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed, either in fact or realm or. Fantasy? Is that fancy? Fancy. Okay, yeah. so it is supposed to be fancy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I didn't know if it autocorrected. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, that's that's amazing. Um, when well, I'm very fond of jazz music. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I've mentioned. So yeah, and I kept thinking, okay, this is an unemployed yes. jazz player. Yeah, I, I feel or a like... group of them have gotten together and written this letter. Yeah, and... I just it's like it's like. Uh, what do they call it when you just blatantly put advertising in a movie kind of th- product, a product placement, placement. Yeah, it's, it's, right? It's product right. placement yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, oh, jeez. Okay. So, in 
the people, like you said, the people listened. Not a single attack occurred that night. And you know what? I'm sure people had a drunken great time. Oh yeah, I'm sure they did too. Because I would just be getting hammered to not be scared anymore, probably. Well, right. And I'm sure that was part of it too. Because I mean, you know, the police had not gotten anywhere with yeah. this. I mean, they had chased their tail since this started. And you know, this I, you know, my my plan is to well, let's 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 we'll okay. talk about that in a bit. But, okay. Um. Yeah. I uh, I think that. People were scared. I, I really do think people were scared. And every time there would be another attack or possible attack, it would just get everybody riled up again. So this was sure. a way to blow off a lot of steam. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think people don't put enough importance on and it put on a lot that. of put a lot of musicians back to work right. at least for one night, which so, is always good. Yeah. Uh, so let's move move on to August then. So Rose Cordemilia uh, still couldn't shake the notion that Frank was the guilty man, which I'm sure they're just asking her. She had a lot of help. You know, when they were in the hospital, they were asking her over and over and over again. And Charles kept saying, no, no, it wasn't Frank. She's like, oh, sure. You know, if you say it was, yeah, if you say it was, then it must have been him. Right. And, you know, also, I just got hit in the head. Like, (laughs) what kind (laughs) of witness am I going to be right now? So the jury finds that Giorgino's guilty initially. Um, and then, but the Axeman strikes again. So right. Sarah uh, Lawman, is that you pronounce yeah. it? So it's struck, it struck in the ear, a mosquito net saving her life. And less than a week later, another grocer, Steve Boca, is attacked. September 3rd, druggist named William Carlson hears a noise at his back door and he just fires yeah, through just it. Which, opens fire at the door. At that point, I don't blame I, him. I know, that's what I'm thinking like, too. It's the middle of the it. night and he's up late reading and yep. here's somebody trying to get at his back door. That brings us back to the... You know the the Billy the Axe Man stories. Remember the sheriff with the oh the, yeah. the guy trying to get in his back yes. door. I'm thinking, you know, that's not your best plan. No, nope. so if you, don't yeah, want you to get shot. Well, you mentioned something too about like petty criminals. Be like, I'm not going to be messing <laughs> yeah. around now. Yeah, nobody went out on that night, right? You know, so yeah, he later finds chisel marks um, on the door panel. So I mean, good for Who him. Knows? I guess yeah. firing. Yeah. yeah, October. So grocer Mike uh, Pepitone has been he's been butchered. So you said this attack was the most savage of all. Um, he didn't own an axe did you just say it's the most savage because of the weapon used or just what, or because they, they whoever it was just kept beating his face in oh, okay. it wasn't like they just hit him a couple of times with an axe i mean we've discussed that that you know if for anyone out there who is you know a struggling axe murderer yeah you should probably know that hitting people with the blade of the axe unless you're planning on severing something yeah. is not your best way to go especially in the head not because in the beginning, it tends to get least. caught in the skull yeah so the best thing to do is to use the blunt side yeah well and this guy speaking. this guy had been using the sharp side of the axe all along and in this particular case there was no axe um, and and while he didn't own one, I'm not sure that has anything to do with it. As well as yes. well as everybody heard in the story, yeah. I, I don't think this was an actual. It seems more like sending a attack, message. But it was a metal bar with a nut on the end, and whoever this was had cracked open his skull and caved in the entire left side of his face. Mm. And you know that um, head wounds bleed a lot anyway. Yes. But when is. you just keep pounding, you know it's it's a lot of blood. Yeah. And, um, you know, his wife's, oh, I didn't, you know, I just woke up and I saw a guy jumping out the window. And of course that turns out to not necessarily be true uh-huh. either. Um, but, um, anyway, he didn't leave behind any of his signature stuff. He didn't chisel through the back door. Right. He didn't take any souvenirs. He just came in, beat the hell out of Mike Pepitone. And my, my thought was, is that if, if Esther had not said, oh, the Axeman's here and killed Mike, this deputy probably they would have just assumed it was just a, some kind of murder. Right. Because, I mean, there were other break-ins and murders well, that New happened. Orleans was not still a dangerous right. place. Yeah. Not everything was an axe murder, but in this particular case, yeah. you know, it, he and, you know, 
it was an Italian grocery store. So then you had that. That was the only really commonality in this story. And and as we know, not all the Axeman attacks happen in groceries. But then, of course, I don't think that most of them that we talked about were actually Axeman attacks. Right. Either, so I, I hung out with a nurse, a nurse practitioner the other day. I'm sorry. Um, show me some pictures of so many things but especially some like head wounds and things oh, like yeah. wow damn talk about just just bloody messes just everywhere mm-hmm. it's it's ridiculous i mean i think about how much i bleed just when i cut myself shaving <laughs> you know like and that's, it's terrible um so i can only imagine just how how gruesome this would be so several people are arrested nothing sticks frank mooney eventually resigns over this essentially i well, guess just or over everything the pressure i mean, they had, I mean they'd gotten nowhere and so, I mean, you know, he, he did put an effort in, but people just wanted somebody to be caught. Yeah. And nobody was. I mean, even the Giordanos had gotten out of prison by this time because, you know, Rose had gotten a, had, had a visitation from St. Joseph who told her to tell the truth. Yes. Like, and then, so then she goes and falls back on the, well, I didn't know what I was saying, which is what she's already done before. Ugh. You know, and so, you know, I mean, everything is, is a mess. And he... Uh, decided that he was better suited for running a railroad and ended up in Honduras. Yeah. How odd was that? I but was again, wondering. the thing, and see, that's a part of him. And uh, here I go with, oh boy. you know, me talking about American history Strap that people in. don't remember. And, you know, people don't, you know, if, if Teddy Roosevelt hadn't been there, no one would remember the Spanish-American War. I mean, which was completely trumped up by the newspapers. And that's how we ended up in Cuba but and the Philippines. But let's not get into that. We've oh, already did okay, that one. Fair enough. But in the early 1900s, the United States invaded a lot of Central American countries. Oh, we, sound like us. we were in, um, well, we, we ran Haiti for years mm-hmm. in the early 1900s. Um, and Honduras, Nicaragua, Colombia, you know, you've heard the term banana republics, yes, right? Okay. Yes. Well, that's what those were. And they were, uh, being propped up heavily, their governments being propped up by fruit companies in the United States, banana companies mm-hmm. mostly, because that's where they were getting all their crops. Interesting. And so to protect their interests, we sent in troops. So we were actually you know, pretty much running these countries in the early 1900s. No one remembers this. Well, I don't yeah. know why. Well, now we traded bananas for like heroin and pop- poppy <laughs> yeah, seeds. And yeah, I know, yeah. but it's 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 just one of those things that has just become so forgotten in our history, and, I, and I've never understood why. Because hmm. there's some really interesting stuff about yeah. a lot of that. But anyway, so he was in Honduras running the railroad there and, and had a heart attack and died. Right. You know, I, I feel like that he really got, I was going to say he got railroaded, uh, pandemic. Hey, but, I love um, it, I love it. You know, he he really got a raw deal on this because this was an impossible series of crimes to solve. Right. Uh, you know, for the time period for the police department he was working the resources. with. resources. Yeah, they just didn't have the resources to solve this thing. And especially when they were being there, they were chasing their tail all over town. And every time someone, you know, found an axe in the grass or thought someone had broken into their back door, they were sure it was the axe man. And as it turns out, I think there were only a handful of these murders dating back to the night, some of the 1911 murders, which I, that was something I meant was going to say earlier, but my plan is to research some of more of that uh-huh. and how all of that ties in together because um, Mike Pepitone's murder, um, as I think we're about to discuss, yes. tied in with a lot of um, you know kidnappings and robberies and black hand stuff, but didn't have anything to do with the Axe Man. The mm-hmm. Axe Man was something completely separate from all this stuff. He, he had I don't think he had anything to do with the black hand. I don't think he had anything to do with you know the kidnappings or the even really you know it, it was something to do with these. 
grocers and whatever it was, I, I don't know. And maybe some more research will turn up some more things. I'm not yeah, sure. That's really but I really think there's only a handful of those murders that were actually his, but uh-huh. enough to make him a serial killer yeah. and em- enough to make him uncatchable. Um, but the, the signatures for me, as you know, with Velisca and then right. some of the other stuff, the signatures are what's most important to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I need to, I need a trail of things that match that you can start linking. And a lot of these don't, really match anything there yeah. could have been some attempts with some of these maybe mm-hmm. but i think for the most part it was wild imagination that created a larger than life figure yeah you know um i i do think there was a serial killer at work um obviously i don't believe he was a demon from hell or anything who hated but, italians yeah who hated italians but um he obviously had a grudge against italians in some He's way just a regular guy that hated right italians. right something uh but he wasn't uh. anything supernatural but it, there definitely was a serial killer at work um but i think the story has just gotten bigger over time because yeah. of all these things that have been mixed into it yeah know, well, i mean so. i think as a serial killer it's probably the highest honor you can get is to just be able to cause as well much i don't know though chaos. because yeah well, yes i guess you no, want your work known because you or... want your work to be known it seems like whenever you know i was working on that um the victims of the axe fiend book uh-huh. and i was working on that research and it would seem like whenever someone else would get blamed for a murder um, he would commit another one that was 10 times worse that's a that's a good point because, it's like the whole god complex yeah, thing you know, they, they yeah. had the, the thing with, um, you know, they were accusing, or Clementine Barnabet in that story was taking uh, credit for one of his murders. Uh-huh. And while she was in jail, he decided he would show them what a real murder looked like Jesus. and committed another one more vicious than anything she had done. Yeah. You know. Okay, um, that's a good point. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think they like people taking credit for their work. I guess I will. I will. But sowing chaos, I'm sure, is that, great. That I was thinking yeah, of the terrorism aspect of it. Sure, I agree with but that. But, yeah, that does make sense because they're, they're very much, like, territorial and, like, don't bl- yeah, don't yeah. give credit. I mean, somewhere the Axeman disappeared, and and whether or not those those last attacks or not even attacks, but it was you know trying to get into houses. Um, I mean, it it could have been the Axeman who got Sarah Lawman's ear. Yeah, you know um, that could have been him. He could have been attempting to get into one of those other places. But honestly. Um, I think the Axeman was gone before the letter ever arrived. Really? Yeah, I think he was already done because this, um, the Mike Pepitone murder was not the Axeman. Okay. I really don't believe it was the Axeman. So, okay, let, well, let's let's dive into this. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Ni- 1921, the final chapter. So December, Los Angeles, uh, far away from New Orleans. Joseph Monfire shot and killed... Monfrey. Monf- I'm so... Oh, it, it's okay. It, it, I know, it's autocorrect. one letter out. So. Um, Monfrey is shot and killed by Esther Albano, who's the widow of Mike Pepitone. Um, Monfrey had once been the leader of a band of blackmailers in New mm-hmm. Orleans who preyed on Italians. He'd been Im- implicated in the kidnapping that had been linked to uh, Pepitone, as well as several black hand bombings of grocery stores. Yeah, Mike's actually Mike's father was a mobster. He was okay. a mafia guy. Okay, got and it. And he had been implicated in a kidnapping, uh, which is a really complicated story. I was That's wondering why you I kind of get in it. Over yeah, it. the Lombana kidnapping is it was important in history. And like I said, I did leave out some crime stuff that wasn't directly related to ghosts sure. that I will dive back into when I get into the book, you know, uh-huh. the Satan's Carnival book. Yeah. I will get into that more and we'll we'll find more of the links. But um, because this, it's it's a pretty complicated story, but uh, Pietro was living in Mike's house. So there's a chance 
that he was the actual target. Mm. It might not have been Mike. He might have killed him by mistake. Uh. Uh, but I do believe that someone connected to this broke into the house and killed Mike Pepitone and maybe even tried to make it look like it was an Axeman thing. That'd be smart. I mean, it, it's certainly smart, especially in that heated climate of yeah. the time. That totally makes sense. But... Um, you know, and, and go ahead. I'm sorry. No, but they, they tried you, to link you said Monfrey the, to this stuff. You say stuff, the patterns right? mostly line up, but you said I think he was probably Pepitone's killer, but the idea of him being the Axe Man is just conjecture. Yeah, it doesn't, right. doesn't yeah. match up. So she serves less than three But years. if you could solve that, if you're a cop right. in New Orleans at the time and your you're, you know, police commissioner superintendent is gone, has gotten fired, and yeah, now yeah. suddenly here's your chance to step in and solve these crimes yeah. and just blame everything on one guy because that's usually how it works. Right. And that's how a lot of, and to this day, and as we all know, we all, you know, as especially during quarantine and, and stuff and the beginning of it, like what we call the age of Tiger King. Um, uh, yes. You know, people are watching, they're hot on the new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Everybody's it's, it's watching great. this stuff. It is. And everybody's watching this stuff. But this is how, this is how serial killers get away with things. Because people will try and lump every murder like it, as we've seen in mm-hmm. all of our in several of our seasons. Yeah. They'll try to lump every, um, you know, every killing under the same umbrella. Want things to be simple. Blame it on one person, and then the other guy gets away. Yeah, and I think that you know, I mean, that's exactly what happened with Velisca. Velisca in general. Yeah, is that they went the other way with it. We're going to blame these murders on just yeah, one person, right, right? And then we're going to ignore all of the matching murders, and yes. so that's the opposite of what I'm talking about. But um, so technically, you know, Billy the Axeman got away with all those other murders because they wanted to blame uh, Velisca on, you know, uh, the good old Reverend or whoever, right, right. you know. So and and I think that happens a lot, and so you've got uh, this lone killer. Joseph Monfrey now. Well, and look at this. We can say, look, he was in jail, or look, he wasn't in jail, and you know, come on, doesn't add up. No, it doesn't add up. But I do, I do believe he killed, because well, apparently there was an eyewitness who never talked about it. Okay, because while living in New Orleans, I think she probably knew better than to speak up. Yeah, she'd seen this guy running out the door and recognized him, but she wasn't. I mean, really, what's changed with mafia stuff? Yeah, I mean, don't you know, snitch. you look at all these murders through the 20s and 30s and the Murder, Inc. stuff in the 40s. They're all unsolved, even though we know who did it right. and why they were murdered half the time. You know, we nobody talks. Mm. And I think that that's exactly what happened here is that she was living there and she wasn't going to say a word about it. Yeah. But being a good Sicilian, she just decided... She'd take care of things herself, yeah, like you know? It. So she waited for him. She found him. She waited for him. And she probably ran into him by accident. Yeah. You know, I, I don't even know if she, she... I don't think she ever said she went looking for him, but she found him, and when she did, she killed him. Handled so, business. I mean, for all we know, she was walking down the street and recognized him and saw her chance. That's that son of a know? bitch. But she didn't even try to hide. She just left. She emptied the gun in the guy and then just sat there and waited for the police to show up. And serves less than three years in prison. And mm-hmm. I said, which for some strange reason, I'm like, well, let's call it even. Like, yeah, you I know? think that, you know, I think that was the thing. I mean, her defense tried to say it was justifiable, but they couldn't really. Yeah. There was nothing happened at the time. So the judge just gives her 10 years and she's out in three. You know, and whatever happened to her, I don't know. You know uh, but I'm maybe I'm going to keep looking. I'll look and see if I can track down what happened to her later. Uh, but I don't know that we'll ever find out. People just disappeared into history sure. back then. So There's many believe that the Axeman was not one killer, but several are working together to terrorize the Italian community. Yeah, I don't believe that either. Yeah. I don't think. I, you don't get these kind of murders with, 
you don't get a bunch of people who are just going to scare people who are doing this, you know, obsessively signature type murder. Right. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. It was one guy who committed some of the murders, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, there was other stuff going on, most of it being wild imagination. And right. then, you know, whoever killed Mike Pepitone, I think probably took advantage of the, yeah. the, the hysteria that was going on. So, it's just I mean, which is a, a way to go. It's yeah. a smart way to do it. I mean, how many TV shows or movies have you seen where somebody will imitate a murder, you know, so they can blame it on some serial killer? Yeah. I mean, I see, I mean, I watch too many movies, but right. I mean, that's something I've seen multiple times over the years in TV shows. Right. And things, so, yeah, you know, why when I, not? When I get, Had together, to get started somewhere, when I get together with my friends, I'm like, you know, it'd be a really funny prank. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. All Let's go... all start murdering people <laughs> and we'll, you know, pretend like it's a monster in the exact same way. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So to wrap this up, to wrap this season up and this, this series in general, I'm curious, what are you, what I wrote down is it's not, a fair question. But I said, "Who would win in a fight?" But I want to know your your thoughts, uh, compare and contrast. Billy, My three the, different axe murders yes. that I've been writing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me some thoughts on that. Well, I don't putting you on the spot. Well, not not really, because they're just three very different types of murders. But um, you know, again, we get back into the axe. You know, when people often want to lump these all together and say, "Oh, look at the axe," you know, it must be the same guy. I mean. I suppose it could be if if they had all been identical. Right. And that's the problem. There was a book that came out that lumped like every axe murder that happened and said it was the same guy uh-huh. and gave him like a hundred and some victims. Nah. I mean, that's not, no. Don't these, give him that much these, credit. These murders were ve- all very different. The, mm-hmm. the Billy the Axe Fiend murders, well, actually, let's go back. Historically speaking, in order, you would have the uh, the Louisiana, Texas Axe Fiend guy. They uh, What they called the Axe Fiend. Okay. Um, in, I mean, he was still the Axe Man. That's the name they gave him, but... Um, I took his name from a newspaper headline and just called him the Axe Fiend. So we'll go with that. Okay. So we've got the Axe Fiend who killed in a very specific way, in a very um, religious-oriented way. A lot of his murders were tied together for that reason. Plus, he only targeted African Americans. Mm-hmm. That's it. That, those were his only uh, targets. And they weren't racial killings because they were occurring in neighborhoods where um, a white person wandering around, whether carrying an axe or not, would have really stood out. And no one ever saw anybody out of the ordinary. So I've always believed that he was an African-American who was committing these murders and I think was doing it because so many of the families were mixed-race families. Um, I believe he was doing it out of some sort of religious... um, fanaticism he had about a mixture of races sure um so that's a that's a completely different story but he traveled by train mm-hmm. like billy the axe man did and um but he's you know confined all his murders uh, to two states it was all louisiana all texas never got beyond that um that we know of you know that we know of at least nothing's been found now billy the axe man traveled all over the place um, most of the time, except for a couple of instances, he always murdered at homes where there were children. And we don't know why he did what he did, but we we thoroughly dug into him yeah. last season. So we, I won't get into all that. And uh, but you know, I think that we've we've gone a long way in presenting the evidence that that was the same guy. Um, although, guys, I, I hate to say this, but if you go back and listen to the uh, one of the first episodes of season three, when I talk about san antonio texas Mm -hmm. i misidentified that murder really yeah um when i went back when i did the axe fiend book Uh um i dug back into that case again and i 
honestly believe that I I did misjudge it and gave it to Billy, and I don't think he would, should have had it just based look? on what it was. Oh, okay. Well, I, you want to read well, the book? I got, to find yeah. That well, or? you could read the book. Um, and I mean, I admit in the Axfiend book that I had believed it was connected to the other murders, but. Um, I don't believe it was Billy's first one. Interesting. I, I really don't. I think Colorado Springs was the first that we okay. that we know of. Yeah. But um, so I apologize for that to anybody who's going back to listen to season three. Uh, there is an episode there that I, as I, as it turns out, I don't believe was Billy anymore. Yeah. I meant to tell you about that so we could say something no, about it. Yeah. But I do cover in much much more detail in the Axfiend book, right? And explain why I believe it was the Axfiend's kill. So, folks, you see what just happened. Troy learned new information and then changed his opinion. Right, on exactly. Something, right, which because that's we can all what you do. do. Yeah. So, but. And I think that the the Axe Man of New Orleans was uh, again a completely different killer. But Axes, I don't. I think I got sidetracked. But I meant <laughs> yeah, to say sure. Axes once again, as I've said a hundred times before, is such a common was such a common weapon we at the time one because everyone had one, yeah. except for Mike Pepitone apparently. Yes. But everyone had one, and so it was an easy weapon of convenience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as far as the the New Orleans Axe Man goes, his body count wasn't nearly as high as the others. And his death rate wasn't even that. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, his kill. Yeah, in the attacks that he did, he didn't kill everybody in any of them. Right. Um, uh, In the unlike unlike the other two crimes, and it it wasn't wiping out entire families. He seemed to be mostly after the head of the household. Mm -hmm. So whoever this guy was, um, it had. I'm going to say that it has probably something to do with the mafia or the black hand mm. in the past okay. because there were murders that matched these almost identically in 1911 and the police once again just lumped it all in and said oh it's black hand terrorism yeah. and yet and there were a lot of attacks that had nothing to do with the axe man and I'll I'll get more I I promise to get more into this when I start putting the book together but okay. um it's just it was too much to try to get into two episodes of a right podcast right right when we're supposed to just be presenting a you know a, a story to run by so anyway so you asked me who I thought well the who's gonna win in a fight well I, I will tell you that the Axe Fiend had the highest body count really um he had a higher body count than Billy the Axe Man did and Billy's was pretty high yeah um but um That's this guy depressing. killing these families in Texas and Louisiana was even higher damn uh there were a lot of deaths only and, two states and he's still yeah <laughs> well and to... yeah he was just and he was hitting much more often than Billy was. His crimes were not as spread out, and mm-hmm. distance-wise weren't as spread out either. Mm. So... Um, it's a risk taker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... Um, they are... Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating working on all of them, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't... I don't think I'd ever do an entire book on the New Orleans Axe Man, but I will definitely be digging into it even deeper yeah. uh, when I put the Satan's Carnival book together. Got it. So. Second question, are you okay? Do you need to talk to anybody? Uh, I mean, I <laughs> no, just want to make sure. No. Hey, you know, actually, sometimes there are there are things I work on that make me uh, think that, you know, um, I can't believe I do this. Yeah. I still, <laughs> uh, two books especially, and I, I people have asked me if there's ever anything that ever bothers me. Yeah. Uh, my book about the Grimes sisters has always bothered me about these two young girls that were murdered, but the one about uh, Marion Parker, the little girl that was kidnapped in L.A., and we'll, let's just say we'll probably be hearing more about that, uh-huh. uh, but she, um, I mean, the guy that killed her, like, cut her up into pieces, mm-hmm. and wired her eyelids open and put her in the car so yeah. his dad would think she was alive wow. when he went to get the ransom money and 
that was, um, and I was writing that like at Thanksgiving time. Yeah. And man, talk about depressing. I, I bet you were a lot of fun that, oh, for man. that meal. Holy cow. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, some of it does bother me. These, these kinds of murders, you put enough distance on this. I mean, we're talking about, you know, all this stuff is 100 years old. The, the, sure. Uh, the, all the, the different axe murder books that I have written. And um, there's just something fascinating about it. I oh, guess of because they're not in big, I mean, New Orleans is a big city, but comparatively speaking it's not new york or los angeles or chicago yeah. or anything and it it seems like a smaller town than it is especially a hundred years ago right and it's just something about that time period that i really enjoy writing about um and you know i i guess i can take a lot of sympathy in the way that people get away with stuff and the, and the, the pressure that was put on the police department even though a lot of times these guys were clowns yeah i mean the volunteers fiends book especially really points that out there were a lot of these guys who it was just they were so it was so it's so racist at that time period 1911 in texas and louisiana it's just unbelievably racist and except but then you'd get this guy who was a sheriff in a town in louisiana who busted his ass to do everything he could to solve these crimes i mean he, he really went above and beyond yeah. and stood up for people and really went to bat for families that had lost family members and stuff it's um so it's it's cool to find you know you'll find your hero in the story somewhere yeah you know um like with Velisca, i you know i always thought it was that that poor marshall horton yeah you know the guy he really tried man he really was just tried. so deep out of his debt you are know, out of his over his head man he's just too too deep right and he didn't know what he was doing but he tried you know and it's all and, you can do you know a couple of those detectives and stuff, you know, that were not the scumbag ones, but the ones who were really trying to, I mean, sure, they were in it, you know, to make a buck. But right. Even so, you know, they really, they really go after stuff and put an effort in. And, you know, I, I, I think I always like that in the stories when I wrote uh, a book about H.H. H. Holmes, the, the serial killer. Yep. There was a detective who had worked for an insurance company named Frank Geyer. And he, he went whole, he just full steam ahead on this case. And he's really the one who found like some of Holmes's victims. He followed his trail. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean, it was just his job and yeah. you could say it was his job. Why does he try so hard? You know, it's 1897, you know, but this guy just went after everything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, here's your hero in the story. If you need a hero. Yeah. You know, I think I was telling you, weren't we talking about cannibalism last week? Yeah, somebody and asked I was if talking it gave about you gastrointestinal the, uh, yeah, issues. Oh, that's right. I was talking yeah. about the Donner Party. Yeah. And, you know, I was, there's, a, you know, the, 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 the ones who went over the mountain to try to get help. I mean, these people were heroes. Yes, they did eat, you know, some of the people that yeah. were lost, left behind. But, you know, still, you know, in every story, no matter how evil the story is, there always seems to be some some hero in there somewhere so and somebody I, think, I like i think that's what i enjoy about doing the you know the crime and, and the ghost stuff combined so much mm -hmm. is because of that so anyway i don't know where i got onto that no, that's but fine it's your fault you asked me the question yes. about the three different killers yes but, i did so. aren't they doing devil in the white city with leonardo DiCaprio? i don't know man they've been saying that for like 10 years uh, I, I i hope i wish they would that'd be so um, good every time i mean i will say every time they talk about it our devil in the white city tour in chicago really takes a bump i bet you know every time they talk about it but they They've never committed to anything mm, that I know of. Well, and it would be good, I think. Uh, oh, that's such a complicated story. I, yeah. I think that... You should make it a series or You something? would be better off with like a 10-episode, uh, like an, an alienist 
style. Yeah. Um, no, it'll be a four-hour Scorsese movie. Yeah, he's and, just uh, well, at least, that would be okay, too, because at least, you know, if you had... He could put the cloud on something to do it for three or four hours. Yeah. Where other people couldn't, and no. you'd need that much time. Yeah. But I don't know if you watched The Alienist or not. No, you've, um, to- you've talked yeah, about it a couple it. times. I just love it. The second season just started, and if you're interested in late 1890s uh, crime stuff, both series are phenomenal. I, I've yeah. loved the books for since they came out, and that was in the 90s, and it took forever to get these made, but... Everybody in them is great, and they're just so well done. And mm. you really see New York at the time. Um, you know, the first one takes place when Teddy Roosevelt's still police commissioner, and he gets them involved and mm-hmm. stuff. And um, the sequel is, um, you know, the same characters, but everybody's really great. And I highly recommend it if you like historic crime stuff. So Okay, fair enough. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can wait, email wait, us. Wait, 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 wait. Unless your comment happens to oh, be um, something Here racist that you want to send us. Oh, yeah, don't uh, do because that. Because you're unhappy with the fact that, um, you know, I called out uh, the way that uh, the government didn't step up to help people in uh, after Katrina. Um, <laughs> if you folks. would not like to, if you'd like to comment on that about how I'm shaming white people, um, I, I'm really not. Uh, I just like to point out the fact that poverty creates racism. And if you look at the history of New Orleans, you're going to find a lot of racism. And I'm sorry if that offends you. Again, it is a free podcast. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen. But if you're going to send us racist letters like that, Please don't, uh, because we're not going to read them. We're going to skim them, and we're going to put them in the delete box. Anyway, um, go ahead. No, fair uh, that's enough. it. I'm done. Um, and, you know, like I said, if you're mad about that, you don't have to write me. Just don't listen. You know, it's fine. So. Fair enough. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy being a white guy. Anyway, okay. Yeah, no kidding. This first, uh, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, oh, sorry. This, no, you're yeah. good. This first one comes to us from Sarah Sims. It says, I found this podcast last fall, and I've binged it until I'm completely caught up and became a Patreon member. Thank you so much. Uh, found you guys through Astonishing Legends. I love the show. I love the research Troy puts in and the questions that Corey asks. It's Cody, but I'll, I'll let it slide. Uh, your <laughs> podcast has helped me through the, this quarantine. I've other stuff, too, yeah. besides Corey. Yeah, so oh, yeah. It, it helped me through this quarantine and my finals. Uh, working in assisted living for the disabled has been hard, but your podcast has been a great escape. I grew up in north of Columbia, went to haunted elementary school in a very small town. I live in Columbia, Missouri now. And uh, Troy, I'm wondering if you've looked into college and university history and ghosts. I know that at least two of our colleges are haunted. Yeah, I wrote her back about this. Okay, great. Yeah, I did write her back. Um, I did have uh, one of the stories that Stevens College is in the big book of Missouri ghost stories. So we, we were talking about that. Got it. said, so also I've not received any of the Patreon gifts through the mail. Would love I'm to have glad them. You mentioned that too. Yeah. yeah you'll yeah. You're, you definitely have stuff coming. Um, yeah. We're, we're completely caught up now. Awesome. We were behind and I put out a post about that to mm-hmm. all our Patreon people. Our printer closed during the pandemic. Yeah. It was closed for months. And so you we found a new get, one, right? Well, we, I had to, that was a different book printer. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, but I had to get a different printer for like our postcards and all that stuff. But we are back. They are back open again, and mm. we just sent out a ton of stuff this past week. Awesome. So um, we've got a bunch of bonus episodes that are going up. So we're actually getting caught up. Okay, again. and all the shirts so, are caught up too yeah, now. Everything's that getting. There. Everything's been yeah. good to go. Yeah. Um, P.S. As I listen to the end, I love the banter between the two of you. I introduced the podcast <laughs> to my friends, and they said you two sound like an old married couple <laughs> <laughs> and middle schoolers. Yes, so, and yeah, middle schoolers. So uh, we've heard today. Yeah, so, I'm okay with that. Yeah, th- Sarah, so Sarah, <laughs> thank you for thank you for reaching out and for your letter. Um, just a couple of quick Patreon shoutouts. I want to say thank you to Diane and Karen. I uh, really appreciate you all supporting the show on Patreon and, and letting us keep doing this yep. craziness yep. that, that we're doing. 
That's all I got. We're just going to keep the doing whole it. Season. So, yeah, that is the season. So that is the season. You can't see me, but I throw my arms up. Yeah, I'm, he did. I'm done. He absolutely I, did. It's just so. It's the end, man. Yeah, it is. And this was a fun season. It and was. That's, I think I took a couple of times to thank people in my monologue uh, just for listening because it was. Uh, this was a really. This is a really fun one. I really kind of felt like we got into a groove with this season. Yeah. Um, more so even than some of the other seasons because it was easy to, um, you know, kind of put the stories together mm-hmm. and chop them up into pieces. Yeah. Um, doing one long thing like we did with season three, I'm not saying we'll never do that again. We may do something like that again in the future. Uh, but it won't be our next season. Uh, we will be sticking probably a little closer to this format yeah. in the next season, but um, it's going to be a completely different area. And again, um, don't ask me because I have absolutely no idea how long this season will be, Yeah, but I have got an absolute wealth of material. So there is, there's, um, I mean, it's almost a bottomless pit. So after we so. <laughs> recorded last time, I went to Mineral Springs and stole that book. Uh, oh, did you? Okay, yeah, good. So because good. I wanted to read it okay. and see, and I'm really, really, and it's going to go way beyond that. Awesome. So I've already got time. that book. That book that you're you're thinking of is ten years old, more than yeah. ten years old now. So I've got a ton more stuff mm. uh, since. And then, people so. are gonna people are gonna know. There people are gonna know the mention of these stories at least. So they're yeah. gonna like know. Sure. Okay, I've heard this name before, but right. I, I know you're right. gonna. And there's just... a lot of names that you're not gonna know, and yeah, you know, but you'll be you're in a unique position with your day job to yes. look some of this stuff up. But I'm excited. It's gonna be fun, and mm. I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and we're gonna have a lot of fun with it. Yes. So. Awesome. Okay. Well. You want I guess to that's tell, it. Tell people yeah, where to guys, find us. Yeah, yeah, you can find us. Um, you can find us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. You can find uh, our website with uh, books and stories and the new T-shirts and everything at AmericanHauntings.net. Um, if you just go to our online store, you can go straight there too, which is AmericanHauntingsBooks.com. So it's pretty easy uh, okay. to find our store now. A um, million URLs. Yeah, I know it. I know, and and that really is kind of the best way to find as it turns out, everything but like, or articles oh, yeah. is all on there because the new uh, Together in Spirit shirts are like in the new titles section. And I should mention, I don't think I did. Um, we're only going to have those available until August 14th. And then they're a limited thing and you got to get your orders yeah. in in that what, time. 10 and then days? they'll print right after that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, 10 days from when this airs. Got it. So uh, yeah, the 14th will be the last day to order the shirts. And then we will... Put those into production, turn them around pretty They quick. look cool. So, yeah, they're pretty cool. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, as a, okay, as a gift to you, we're gonna the, just gonna be done. The last episode of the season. Oh, thank God. I'm just gonna let it go and Good. not say that this episode of the American Hogs podcast was written by Troy Taylor. I really thought you liked this. By time. me, Cody Peck. Once. In each bi weekly episode, Are you gonna rewrite we try this? to combine history, maybe folklore, well, legend, imagination, and, try to make it shorter. and the truth to reveal more about America's anyway. most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows, and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we have show notes, more info about the episodes, and links to American Hauntings. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast, it's books, tours, events, events in person now, and more. Yeah, and back our, to that again. Our main so. website is AmericanHauntings.net. Or AmericanHauntingsBooks.com. Or AmericanHauntingsBooks.com. So, yeah, I didn't, I, that's, that's pretty new. Yeah, I mean, we just, all right. We just did a brand new online store, well, during the quarantine. Right. Well, and so they well, let well, us well, have well, a... Free time. They let us have a, you know, a, a unique URL for just the online 
online store. That's awesome. Which is pretty cool. Right. So. Well, so if you want even more from us and books and stuff like that, you become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. Which we are all caught up. Did yes. I say this last week? Yep, probably. I think we were in the middle of catching up, but we really are caught up. All now. caught up. So. And you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff I in the mail, and more. I just recorded a bunch of bonus episodes. He sent me so many. Th- I did. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for the show, and we continue to help from you. We can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. So take a minute and check it out. We think you like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable. Well, Which again, maybe not. Uh, maybe not. After, <laughs> maybe you know, not. Like, just save those because I'm not interested. I will, so yes. If, you, I'll if read you've them, got sure something racist to say, I'm not interested. So I am reachable via email. We are reachable on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and by Carrier Pigeon. For the last time this season. Yep. Goodbye. So long and see you later. All right. Good deal. All right. Do you know I was gonna do that? You had to. Oh yeah. I, was oh, I tried to get you so, fired up before. Yeah. Um, Why not? Fuck it. It really pissed me off. Yeah. And I felt like that it was. Out of-